who said anything about safe. Of course, he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king. He's not safe, but he's good. That's the famous response that Mr. Beaver tells Susan in C.S. Lewis's famous story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Susan, a child, wanted to meet the lion and wanted the lion to be safe. She wanted the lion to meet her expectations. And Mr. Beaver very quickly disabused her of that. I don't think that you and I are much different from Susan. As we live in God's world, we easily settle into believing that God is safe, that he's tamer than the God that we meet in Scripture. For you as a Christian, he's much milder than the God you've come to know through Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian, any assumptions you have about the safety of God are in one sense dangerous. His goodness means he's more serious about sin and about salvation than right now in your own life you can fathom. This morning, we're going back into Genesis, Genesis 45, verse 16, all the way through chapter 46. It's the account of Joseph. And what I I want you to see in this text is just how unexpectedly good God is how committed God is to doing good, even and especially when everything in your life or in the world would tempt you to say otherwise. But here's the thing about this. To see this, to really grasp this, you cannot see as the world sees. You must see as God sees. So here's the the main point this text. God is good. He's better than you can imagine. And he can do anything to accomplish salvation. God is good. He is better than you can imagine. And he can do anything to accomplish salvation. So let's begin with that. Let's begin seeing, number one, God and goodness. God and goodness. Two weeks ago, we left Genesis, and the brothers found out that Joseph was alive. He was presumed dead, but before their very eyes, he proved without a doubt he was alive. And now we come to the aftershocks. Look at verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beast and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, 
take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey to each and all of them. He gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Wow. This report goes out to Pharaoh and his house. And of course, here the Pharaoh does not know what he, he doesn't know. He has no idea all that the true God has done sovereignly to bring these brothers to Egypt. He has no idea all that the true God has done sovereignly in his heart, even in his own reaction in verse 16. He's pleased that the brothers have come. He's not threatened by them, he's pleased. Joseph has saved this Pharaoh. And now the Pharaoh works to save Joseph and his family. And honestly, it's almost like winning a game show. He showers blessings and gifts on them. Look at verses 17 through 20. His generous response is related to the land. Verse 18, I will give you the best of the land. You shall eat the fat of the land. Verse 19, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your family. Verse 20, have no concern. The best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Genesis begins with the land being cursed and there being famine after famine in this book. And now here is God sovereignly with his family who's on the brink in a famine, working through Joseph, who he's raised from the dead to bring them into the best land in the world. God can do anything. In the most unexpected circumstances, a terrible famine when the brothers thought their brother was dead, here was God working to do good, to give this family the best of the land. Because remember, only an offer like this would entice this family to leave the land of promise. 
God makes impossible promises, God keeps impossible promises because it's only God who can do what is humanly impossible. Remember in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and 17, God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you the land in which you sojourn. It was an impossible promise and it takes a long time to see its fulfillment. God is not giving his people yet the land of promise, but he, through Joseph's ministry, through the most powerful man on the planet, is giving his people the best of the land's superpower. If you had told Joseph when they went back down to Egypt that this is how they would come out, they wouldn't have believed you. Do we believe God? We, we sit here today, we are waiting for God to keep impossible promises. We're not waiting for God to give us the best of the land of Egypt. We are literally waiting for God to give us the whole world. To give each one of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ a place in that world. Do not judge God by your feeble, limited sense. Do not judge him by what you see. Stare at his character. Stare at his power. And see how God uses all of that for good, unimaginable good. He sends Joseph ahead. He raises him up. And in his resurrection power, God is now doing unimaginable good for his people. So as we look at this text, ask yourself, what is causing you right now to doubt the goodness of God? Make it very personal. Why do you doubt the goodness of God toward you? Is there a sin that you want very badly? Maybe it's something you believe God hasn't given you that he owes you. What is it that causes you to doubt the goodness of God? Are you judging God by your own wisdom or by what he has revealed? These brothers have sinned terribly. And they have sinned against the very one who is now doing good to them. God here is doing more good than they can fathom. God is good. He's better than you can fathom. Now notice we've seen this. His goodness doesn't always express itself in the way we expect or that we want. Remember, he's not safe. He doesn't do what we want always, but he always does good. And because he is good, he knows how to do good better than you and I know how to do good. Pharaoh gives gifts and Joseph gives gifts. Verse 21 to 24, notice he gives them provisions and clothes. Now think of that. These are the brothers who stripped Joseph of his clothes. And in the end, they're not being stripped by Joseph, but being clothed by him. Only a good God brings about this kind of ending. To his own brother, Joseph gives more money and more clothes. Benjamin receives clearly special favor and provision. Joseph has that right. Remember, all the brothers are receiving undeserved grace. None of them deserve anything they're getting. To his father, Joseph sends donkeys and food and provision. And notice verse 23, the good things of Egypt. Egypt is going to be a terrible land for God's people. 
but he's giving them good gifts, the best of the land. And Jacob. The scriptures make very clear that Jacob has given God every reason not to love him, to give up on him. But here is God refusing to give up. Here is God who will not stop doing good to Jacob. And if you're a Christian, he's not ever going to stop doing good to you. The testimony of every Christian is this. I have given God more reasons than I can count not to love me, but he will not stop loving me. And if you would be a Christian who will be faithful to the end, you must get comfortable with the unexpected goodness of God. You, you must get comfortable in being able to say, he's done so much for me, I cannot tell it all. And in glory, I'm going to see clearly, more personally, ways he was good to me that I could not have fathomed. Ways I never knew. In light of all of our sin and God's holiness, train yourself to see the world as it is. To see the God who in the midst of this evil world is always doing good to you in Jesus. Joseph gives good gifts to Jacob and his brothers, and he gives them good counsel. Verse 24, do not quarrel on the way. Kind of feels like he's saying, guys, I know you're still jerks. Don't do it. He knows them. I think he's working for peace. I think he knows that they're going to be tempted as they tell Jacob the truth that they've been hiding to maybe blame each other and what's happening. He's continuing to wisely work for peace and for good. Can you imagine what it was like to be Jacob? Verses 25 to 28, he's been home the whole time. Suddenly, the brothers come back and they come to him and they declare, Joseph is alive. Joseph is alive. He's raised from the dead. He's the ruler of Egypt. You realize that announcement of Joseph's power would have filled those brothers with total fury and envy only years before. But now they're transformed and they're forgiven. And they rejoice in Joseph's position. Jacob's numb. He doesn't believe what he's being told. Because what he was being told was humanly impossible. Sons who have died don't just come back to life. Sons who have gone down to the depths of the pit in Egypt are not just suddenly raised up to this kind of power. And yet... Jacob is going to have to learn, and we have to learn, that with the God of Jacob, sons are, because the true and living God can do anything, and he's better than you can fathom. Jacob only hoped in this journey that Benjamin would come back alive. And with this God, he's not just getting Benjamin back, he's getting Joseph back from the dead, Alive, not just laying in the hospital bed with a machine on, resurrected. 
in power. And in this new life, he's showering his family with goodness. It's in verse 27 when he hears the full report and he sees the wagons. But he believes. 20, two zero, donkeys, grain, bread, good things of Egypt, all in a famine. Jacob, who is despaired unto death, comes alive. And in faith, Jacob, Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Jacob never thought he would ever say those words. The last time in Genesis that Jacob said he would go to see his son, Joseph, was in Genesis 37. He had been told his son had been devoured by a fierce animal. He refused to be comforted. And what did he say? I shall go down to Sheol to see my son mourning. Jacob is not going to the realm of the dead to see his son, but he's going to the land of the living. Why? Because God is better than you could ever imagine. And God can do anything. God can give a man who in the midst of a a famine has lost every bit of hope. Hope, a revived soul, And he can shower on that man more goodness than that man deserves or could ever fathom. If you would know God, the true God, you must know he's better than you imagine. Do you see here how God is preparing his people for the fullness of the gospel? Joseph's brothers betray Joseph. Then they find out that their dead brother is alive and in his resurrected life, he's doing good to them. How much more so with God? You've rebelled against and I've rebelled against very personally, very seriously, embarrassingly, intentionally. And what did God do in our rebellion? He sent his son ahead. He sent his innocent, perfect, righteous son who suffered and suffered and suffered, lived and died on a shameful cross. He died for the unrighteous and the guilty He died for his brothers who had betrayed him. And he's now raised up, not in Egypt, but in heaven and on earth, holding all power. And what is he doing? He's doing good. He's giving good gifts to his people. He's giving life. And he promises to bring his people into the very best of the land. That's humanly impossible. It's not impossible for God. God is better than you can imagine and he has revealed a salvation that is better than you can imagine. How will you respond to the the news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead? With unbelief? Or will you be like Jacob was eventually and say, I will go to him. Come out of unbelief. Believe in him. Come to him. He's more than ready to receive you and to give you life. It's what Jacob did. He responded in faith. I will go to him before I die. Jacob is showing you what faith looks like. He hears the news and he reorients his life. He's willing to become a sojourner. He's willing to become a foreigner in the world. Faith 
expresses itself in action. He goes. In your faith, you must act. It will demonstrate itself. Christ has been raised. You will go to Christ. You will take full advantage of, advantages of your privileges in Christ. Friends, God is so good. The gospel is so good. God plans and prepares more good for his people here than they or we would ever even have the courage to ask him for. God and goodness. Second, family and faith. Family and faith. I'm going to read the first 27 verses of chapter 46. Stay with this genealogy. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, came into Egypt. Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, and Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron, the sons of Sebulon, Zered, Elon, and Jahlil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah, altogether his sons and his daughters, number 33. The sons of Gad, Siphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Aradai, and Erali. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, with Sarah their sister. And the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Silpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him, and the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Bechur, Ashbel, Gerah, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Husham, the sons of Naphtali, Jasil, Gunai, Jesser, and Shilam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All these persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt 
were 70. So here we were, so ready for the reunion between Jacob and Joseph. And what we got with this was this very long genealogy. I hope you stayed with me. Why is it here? Well, let's look. Notice first, we're told that Jacob journeyed Israel to Beersheba. He offers sacrifices there. Why did Moses stop to tell us he stopped at Beersheba? Because this has been a significant place in Genesis. For Abraham, for Isaac, Abraham had made a treaty with Abimelech in, the, in that place in Genesis 21. He, he dug a well there. He called on the name of the Lord there. He, he lived there. Isaac lived there as well. If you look at Genesis 26, 2, you would see God appeared to Isaac in a vision there. And in appearing to him, he said to him very explicitly, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in Canaan. God is going to give you the land and he's going to bless the nations, give you offspring. There's Sheba ends up being the southern border, the promised land. And for this family, it is no small act to cross that border. And remember, we've been through a number of chapters in which God's providence, God's presence were meant to be discerned by faith. And now again in the book of Genesis, God speaks directly in a vision. Now it's been many years since God has done this in this book. But God has not been passive. He has spoken to this family. He's brought this family to this point. And he's acting in this way because I think Jacob knows well that his God told his family, don't go down to Egypt. Now Jacob, he's the patriarch, and he must be sure that if he leaves that land of promise for Egypt, that God is still with him, that God will still bring about the promises. And now that this family is reconciled, they're reunited, they have everything they need to go to that land, dependent upon God, his power, and his presence. And notice that is what God promises. Verse four, I myself will go down with you. You will go there with my presence. Verse three is power. I will make you a great nation. Verse four, I will bring you up again. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So Beersheba, he is reaffirming promise that he made to Abraham. And remember, God had promised to give them the land that they were leaving. And so God is giving to them his word of promise so that they know that by leaving this land, they are not undermining the power and promise of God. God can take his people to a foreign land and in a foreign land, God still keeps his promises. But remember, God's presence does not mean there will not be difficulty. God was with Joseph in Egypt, and Joseph sunk to the lowest place in Egypt, in a prison. Do not think that trials in your life are evidence of God's absence. That is when for you as a Christian, you must be so sure of his promise. I am with you 
always. God's promise here to Jacob is what God's people were meant to live on for many centuries. Do you know the next time God is going to appear directly like this in Scripture? It's going to be 430 years when he appears to Moses in the bush. What does that mean? That means for centuries, God's people were to live and rely and trust on the word God had given. And that was to be enough. God's word is enough for salvation, for ministry, for missions. It's enough. It's no different for us. God calls his people to things and he commits himself fully to his people. He gives his people enough so we know how to live and what to do. That's what Jacob's doing. He's leading, he's going to lead his family to live in a place that's humanly impossible for God to keep his promises, a foreign land. But God is promising, I will bring you out. Somehow, some way, he doesn't know how, God's going to make them a great nation. This God delights to bring his people to the place of humanly impossible circumstances so that before the world, he can bring us out. Now, my guess is some of you right now fear circumstances or the future that seems impossible. Look away from it and to God. Stare at God. You cannot, no matter what, if you're in Christ, outrun the presence of God. You cannot, no matter what, in Christ, exhaust his power. He can make his people into a great nation in a foreign land. He can work in impossible circumstances because he's good and he can do anything. And he loves to put his people in impossible circumstances to do what he alone can do so that he alone can get the glory. Trust him, believe him, give him glory in that way. That's what Jacob did. He took everybody. He doesn't leave one person, one thing in case God can't make all of this work out. That's what the text is saying to us. Verse five, by faith, he sets out from Beersheba. He risked everything on God. Verse six, they took their livestock. Verse seven, all his offspring, sons, 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 daughters, sons, daughters, all his offspring going into Egypt. Even back in verse one, he took all that he had. He doesn't hedge his bets. He takes the whole family. That's what it looks like to live by faith. It is to live a life that demonstrates to everyone, if God fails, I fail. It's risking everything on what God has promised. It's risking everything on God. And to live a life like that means your life will not make sense to the world. Get that in your head and in your heart. To trust God's, to trust God, means you will make decisions you will have values and beliefs that the world will never tell you to have. You will do things the world will never tell you to do. 
Every one of us, every one of us is risking our life on the power and the promise of something. What is that for you? We, we so easily confess this, God, but offset the risk with what is safe. We give lip service to entrusting all things to him, but we get insurance from the lies of the world. You can trust him with everything. You realize how foolish Jacob looked in his day. He was well off. It was a famine and he's picking up everything and he's going down to Egypt. Jacob had a reputation in his society and he just left. Can you imagine what the neighbors said? Can you imagine how they must have started to wonder even more, what is Jacob's God like? And yet he took everything. And because he lived by faith and he was faithful, here we are proclaiming the God of Jacob, even this morning. It looked like foolishness to the world. It was the wisdom of God. So faith, not abstract, not vague faith, like the world talks about, but faith in the God of Jacob is not foolish. What ways do you need to trust God today? What ways do you need to trust God this week? What do you believe that God is not trustworthy with in your life? You should tell yourself what that is. You should say it maybe to someone else today or this week. And ask him for help to believe him. Believe him. Jacob believed God. This genealogy is what proves it. Names that you don't know, but Jacob knew. I think that the people who originally read this knew and knew well. Most importantly, God knew. There's a structure to it. Notice in 8 through 15, it's Leah's children. And then Silpah. Leah's servant, her children, 16 to 18. Rachel, the only one listed first because she was his favorite, 19 to 22. And then verse 23 to 25, Bilhah, Rachel's servant and her sons. The summary in verses 26 and 27 gives us the point. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, verse 27, came into Egypt were 70. What I think is going on here near the end of this book is it's structured in such a way that it stands in contrast with Genesis 10, where we have a list of a table of nations and there's 70 nations represented in that chapter. And the point is with this family of 70, something new, a new family, a new nation, a new humanity is being brought about by God not by the power of the world, but by God. This family, we know, exists by God's power. And I can promise you that if you lived in the world of that day, this family looked like nothing. But here is God doing something through them that will outlast the whole world. To live by faith means you cannot see as the world sees, but as God sees. So students and adults, you should listen in. Living by faith means you will make judgments and decisions in light of eternity, not time. You will make 
decisions in light of who God is, not what your friends think or what they will say. It means you will endure trial and hardship because you know suffering comes before glory. And with our God, confusion comes before clarity. But God promises his presence to us. He'll be with this family in Egypt. He's taking them there by his power. He will bring them out by his power. And by faith, Jacob takes his entire family. He takes everything. He's not leaving anything behind. And God, by his grace, will deliver this family. And that's what we'll see finally. Shrewdness and salvation. Shrewdness and salvation. Look at verse 28 in chapter 26. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. This is shrewdness and salvation. Jacob is sending Judah on the way ahead in Goshen. Where is Goshen? I have no idea. That's the first clue. I only know it was desirable. Uh, Remember in chapter 45, Joseph said he would give his brothers this land. So Judah's emerging as the leader. He goes before to Joseph to prepare the way. And Joseph, he prepares his chariot for this massive moment to meet Israel, his father, Jacob. This is royal enthroned Joseph doing away with every bit of protocol. He will not wait for his father to come to him. He goes to him and he presents himself to him. He falls on his neck and he weeps on his neck for a good while. Do you know who else has fallen on Jacob's neck and wept? Decades earlier, his brother Esau. Jacob is a man who in his own life personally has seen God do the impossible again And again, Jacob is a man who has personally tasted the goodness of God in ways he would have never dare dreamed or asked. And Jacob has all the tears to prove it. Verse 29 was an impossibility in Jacob's mind. It was an impossibility in Joseph's mind. It was not an impossibility in God's mind. God ordered their lives so that they would both live to see this moment because God is that good. 
and God can do anything. This is a kind of salvation. Jacob is seeing the son he thought he would never see again. He's ready to die. Go to Sheol because he's seen his son in the flesh. Do not doubt that God means not just for us to believe in his goodness. He means for each of us who have trusted Jesus to see it, to taste fully the salvation that we have hoped for and longed for and have trusted in. And what does God do in life? He kindly gives us small glimpses of this along the way. God really was with Jacob. He was with Joseph. Even when his presence was felt so foreign, couldn't be discerned, so many years of confusing circumstances, the only way they would have had reason to believe in the presence of God was because God had said, I am with you and we'll do this. We can't expect that our journey will be any different from theirs. We will walk into circumstances that will feel like chaos. Will you believe that God is in control? There will be times in your life when the plan that you had will go totally off course. Will you believe that God has good plans or not? Some of you right now don't see the end. The end feels impossible. Joseph couldn't see the end in prison. Jacob didn't when he thought his son was dead and devoured by an animal. But God saw the end. And God saw to it that Jacob and Joseph would see each other. That is your God. In all things, all things, he's doing good. Good that Jacob and Joseph would see eventually after the time. So whatever your present time, be sure there will be an after the time. You will see the goodness and the kindness of God. What does not make sense to you now will make sense to you then. You will praise him then for what you would have never asked for him from him now. When you look at this scene, you understand deeply that the reason tears are falling is because words have reached their limit. There's nothing more to say. And you also understand that in those tears are doxology and theology. They are tasting the goodness and sovereignty of God. Jacob ready to die, but he has 17 more years to live. And Joseph, he just keeps acting for the good of his family. Here with shrewdness, he's told them they're going to dwell in Goshen. Now Joseph, who knows Egypt, who knows how it works, shrewdly acts in their favor. He knows how to make it happen. He hones in on what he will say to Pharaoh. He, for some reason, knows that he can't just say, can the family dwell in Goshen? Shrewdly, he knows they're shepherds. He knows they're an abomination to Egyptians. It might have been for religious reasons. It might have been that they were lower class. It might have been that Egyptians thought that shepherds who were semi-nomadic were spies. Whatever the reason, Joseph is going to tell Pharaoh, who's made a generous offer, his brothers have come and they're shepherds and his brothers are do the same. What we should see here is that Joseph is siding with this abominable, abominable family of shepherds over the prestige of Egypt. God's people over Egypt. He's relating to the Pharaoh shrewdly for his family's good. He's working for their and for the world's salvation. Remember, this is the one family on the planet that God has promised to bring salvation for the world through. 
And Joseph is ensuring that this family remain, remains separate from Egypt. That this family will not intermarry. That they will do what is abominable to the Egyptians. But slowly and surely through them, God is going to do something great. They are going to be despised, but God will fulfill their destiny. Notice this, God is more than pleased for his people to be the lowly and despised of the world so that through his people, he can put his power on display. God loves to bring salvation through what the world despises. Here it's despised shepherds. Eventually it's the despised cross. God's people are going down into Egypt, but by the shrewdness of Joseph, Egypt will not go down into them. Joseph is wisely working for their good. So here is God, his people with his presence in a foreign land about to receive the very best. God delights to take his people into circumstances that are humanly impossible so that God can bring his people out. And God has not changed this morning. Joseph, Jacob, this entire family saw God's goodness in ways that they did not deserve, in ways that they could have never dreamed or imagined. I promise you on the word of God, brothers and sisters, one day you and I will see his goodness fully very soon.